0: Fireflies are often seen as emblems of evanescence. Mr. Faulkner, who spent a great time at this university, or at least had a great impact in his time here, in one of his novels was very careful to say, no, not fireflies. This is the South, lightning bugs. Fireflies are also emblems of illumination. Arnold Toynbee writes of Otto Spengler's pages teeming with firefly flashes of insight. A wonderful turn of phrase. A self-confessed DB updike wannabe, John Christensen, has been proprietor of the Firefly Press in Boston since 1985. He's a printer and historian and a collector. A frequent but never common lecturer on the art and practice of letterpress printing. He delivered the annual Lieberman lecture of the American Printing History Association in 2009. The book, broadside, bookplate, business card, and book announce- and birth announcement beautiful. He wanted to call it, no, he was asked to call it the book beautiful, and he said, no, my press does a lot of other ephemeral, but when John prints not ephemeral things. So you can see a sample of them in the back. You can catch this amazing and beautifully illustrated lecture in the current issue of the Association's journal, Printing History. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce John. We've had already several animated conversations. Here is a bookman of the first order, and tonight he's going to be the referee as linotype and monotype duke it out. John.
1: (laughs) Thank you much. We're not having slides yet, so we we can't. I get to see you. Uh, Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Uh, This is my first visit to the University of Virginia. I was fully prepared to be impressed by the the beauty of the grounds and the age and the patina. And I wasn't disappointed. Uh, What did surprise me was to discover the youth and to be sure the beauty uh, and the star quality of the staff of RBS. Uh, I'm afraid I embarrassed myself in front of Barbara Heritage by being surprised that she wasn't in her mid-fifties with her hair in a bun and wearing a cardigan. <laughs> uh, I watch the book arts world uh, with great interest from a safe distance in the little cubby that is my my little press up in Boston. Uh, and to see the talent and the vigor and the youth which is going to be able to carry this forward uh, is the most inspirational hope-building thing I've come across in a long time. So bravo to this program and I'm more honored than ever that you thought to ask me to come. So my intro into the prepared text. I dare say most people collect and retell little stories and myths to help them validate the work they do. My attorney father liked to remind medical friends that while members of his profession had been drafting the Bill of Rights, members of theirs were bleeding George Washington to death. (laughs) We printers, too, console ourselves by saying that ours was the first technology of the modern age, even that printing made the modern age possible. As the philosopher Francis Bacon wrote in 1620, printing gunpowder and the compass changed the whole face and state of things throughout the world. And it is nice for us printers to be able to remind ourselves as we endure the frequent drudgery of our work that in the year 2000, no less infallible a source than Time magazine proclaimed Johannes Gutenberg as the man of the millennium. Another boast I used to hear in commercial letterpress printing shops that were still around when I started out was that, Guten, that, was that if Gutenberg were to come back, he would feel quite at home there. Why would this was something to be boasted of, I never quite understood. But it was the truth. The basic technology of mid-20th century letterpress printing bore a still recognizable similarity to that of the mid-15th century. Indeed. From the invention of printing until the Industrial Revolution, letterpress printing changed scarcely at all. Baskerville and Bodoni in the late 18th century were still hand setting, hand cast metal type, and hand printing on handmade paper with wooden presses in the same way that Nicholas Jensen had done 300 years before them. The Industrial Revolution changed a lot in printing as elsewhere. Cast iron replaced wood in the construction first of larger and more powerful hand presses and then of much faster steam-powered cylinder presses. Large rolls of paper made of grass and wood pulp replaced handmade rag paper sheets. Electrodeposition made possible the cutting of letters of t- in type metal rather than in hard steel and galvanically growing type matrices rather than punching them. This is the invention that led to the riot of Victorian decorative type. Typecasting machines replaced the slow hand casting of individual types. Stereotyping duplicated type forms by means of paper mache molds. Cloth supplanted leather as the primary material for book bindings, and with changes in the manufacture and selling of books, the trade edition as we know it came into existence. After centuries of slow evolution and technological stability, the scale and pace of printing as of so much else had grown dramatically. And yet, in the midst of all this 19th century change and expansion, one significant part of the printing process remained conspicuously and worrisomely unchanged. All type was still set by hand, just as it had always been. Compositors standing at type banks, picking individual sorts from type cases, composing them into text, filling out lines to even measure, and in the case of justified text, fitting variable word spaces. It had always been a slow process. Try it yourselves and see. And as everything else sped up, this slowness grew increasingly irksome and eventually intolerable. How can we set type faster became one of the great technological quests of the mid 19th century. Technological advance can be seen as a series of bottlenecks. Something stands in the way of progress and so attention is paid to that problem. Once it is solved, there is a burst of productivity until something else becomes the bottleneck. A faster way to set type was long and widely recognized as a need within the printing industry and much ingenuity and a great deal of money were expended in the effort to find one. And now we come to our slides, please. So could we have the lights off? Thank you. Mark Twain famously lost his wife's fortune backing the page compositor, a machine that did work after a fashion, but not well enough, quickly enough, or cheaply enough to be economically feasible. The problem with the page compositor, as for some later, simpler, and briefly viable composing machines like the unitype, was that their inventors misconceived the challenge before them. <laughs> they were trying to invent ways to mechanically manipulate precast type into composed type forms. That, after all, was how it had always been done, by hand. This approach, however, still carried with it all the problems of supply and wear that burdened hand composition. The would-be inventors couldn't make the inspired leap of lateral thinking that formed the basis of the two machines that eventually did succeed in cracking the problem. The linotype and the monotype, as we shall see, are in many ways very different, but each began with the same premise to start not with already existing type, but with molten type metal. The mechanical casting as well as composing of type was not only faster than setting by hand, but it meant never running out of sorts, than which little is more aggravating, is you will know if you have ever set type by hand, always having a fresh supply, and remelting, not distributing the type once it is used. The successful invention of hot metal composing machines around the turn of the 20th century was a revelation and a godsend to the printing industry, and it changed printing as nothing else had since the invention of movable type. It was the greatest single leap forward in productivity, productivity to that date. The linotype and the monotype also were also to mark the pinnacle, the finest achievements, of the age of purely mechanical engineering. Thomas Edison, who had nothing to do with either machine, called the linotype the eighth wonder of the modern world, and he was right. The early history of linotype and monotype is fascinating. Both machines underwent long development, and both had several beta versions, if you will, before arriving at their mature configuration. The story of the industrial empires that were required to develop, manufacture, and sell the machines is also instructive, if less edifying. When RBS offers a full course on the linotype and monotype, those stories will be worth exploring more fully. Suffice it for now to say that in 1886, the first commercial linotype machine developed by Otmar Mergenthaler was installed in the office of the New York Tribune. Now, when you walk into room 116 at Alderman, turn to the left, look up, and there on the shelf, is a bound volume of New York Tribune July to December 1886. Why do you suppose that is there? The following year, the first patent for what would become the monotype was granted to Tolbert Lansdown. The linotype had incorporated most of its enduring features by about 1898. Monotype was launched commercially in 1900 but in 1912, the company recalled its early machines and reintroduced an improved version that was the basis for all later developments. And it happens, historically, that although the machines were clearly invented, respectively, by Otmar Mörgenthaler and Tolbert Lanston, neither of those men was fully responsible for their machine's final mature configuration. They both died or were out of it uh, before the machines fully developed. Here they are as they appeared in their state-of-the-art glory. A linotype machine and the monotype keyboard and caster. And here, about a hundred years later, they still are in my printing shop in Boston. I call this view the parade of the dinosaurs. (laughs) It almost always stops first-time visitors in their tracks. People above a certain age, about 50, are surprised and usually pleased to see these machines still in operation. People below a certain age, about 30, are astounded and sometimes nonplussed that such machines ever existed. It is necessary necessary now for me to try to explain to you something of how the linotype and the monotype work, not just so that you too will be astounded by them or be impressed by my knowledge of them, but because the mechanisms of each machine imposed their own constraints on composition and on letter forms, To understand 20th century printing, it is important to understand the linotype and the monotype. So let's begin with the linotype. It was the earlier invention, it was commercially the more successful one, and though you'll find it hard to believe at first, it was the simpler of the two you may, if you like, think of linotype and monotype as being the Microsoft and the Macintosh of their day. One dominated the market, but the other was more accomplished. Bill Gates could have learned all he needed to know about driving competitors into bankruptcy from the linotype company, and no device was ever more aptly described as insanely great than the monotype composition caster. In hand composition, Individual types are assembled into lines. In line casting machines, what are assembled instead are individual matrices. This can be done by hand, as with the Ludlow system of display type, or by means or as with the linotype, by means of a keyboard. Here is the keyboard of our linotype, not, you may notice, the conventional QWERTY typewriter keyboard. By means of this keyboard, matrices, the software of the linotype, are released from the magazine in which they are stored. Our Model 31 linotype, dating from 1944, carries four magazines at a time. You see them stacked. You crank the one you want into position. The matrices drop through this maze of shoots and belts and line up in what is called the assembler. Here you can read what has been composed on the index face of the assembled matrices. You will appreciate that every time a key is struck in the composition of a line, another matrix has to drop. There must therefore be many matrices of each letter enough to compose not one, but two lines. As in operation, a second line is already (coughs) being keyed while the first one is still being cast. A font of linotype matrices comprises several hundred individual mats. Here is a font in a storage case. Each magazine, here is a magazine about to be installed contains the mats of a single type size of a single typeface. There are 90 keys on a linotype keyboard, 90 channels in the magazine. This is not enough to provide for the five different alphabets, Roman uppercase, Roman lowercase, italic uppercase, italic lowercase, small caps as well as points, figures and spaces that make up the complement of a traditional typeface. This problem was solved neatly, but not without consequences, by punching not one, but two characters into the operating face of each matrix. This is called a duplex matrix. In most matrices, these two characters are the Roman and the italic, or the light and the bold version of the same letter. The alignment of a matrix in the assembler determines whether the Roman or the italic character will be cast. So if this line were to have been cast in this position, the rare book school at would be cast in Roman and the University of Virginia in italic. Any character can be in either position. The maximum line length of most linotype machines is 30 picas, or five inches. The largest size in which most linotype can cast (coughs) Duplex matrices is 14 points or large text size. Linotype developed models capable of longer lines and larger sizes, but the most common linotypes <coughs> excuse me remain 14 point 30 pica machines. When a line of matrices has been composed and if one is as bad a compositor as I carefully check for correctness, the casting mechanism is engaged and from then on the process is entirely automatic. The assembled matrices are raised and transferred into the first elevator which lowers them into the casting position. Any metal printing type is made by mating a matrix which casts the face of the type, with a mold which casts the body of the type. On the linotype, the mold creates the body for an entire line, a linotype, or slug, while the assembled matrices cast the face of an entire line. The mold wheel, shown here, carries four molds, any of which can be selected, and all of which can be altered for line length and point size. Once the line of matrices is positioned in front of the mold, molten lead is pumped in from behind, filling the cavity formed by the mold and matrices. The matrices are withdrawn, the mold wheel rotates, trimming the bottom of the slug in the process until the newly cast but already solid slug is in position to be ejected into the delivery galley. Meanwhile, the matrices are lifted by the first elevator, transferred to a second elevator, and raised up to the top of the machine, the roof, as it's called. There they are carried along a grooved rail until notches in that rail correspond to notches in each of the 90 different matrices, whereupon the matrix drops into its correct channel of the magazine to be recycled in a subsequent line. By a system of movable vice jaws, the linotype can set text that is flush left, flush right, Or centered on the slug. The real test and the real challenge for the would-be inventors of typecasting machines, however, is how a typecaster handles justified lines with their necessarily varying word spaces. With the linotype, this is accomplished with space bands, compound sliding wedges that when they are compressed Expand in width until the line of matrices for which they serve as word spaces locks tight at its predetermined length. Here is a line of mats with space bands between them, and the space bands are in their full narrow position. Here is the same line with the space bands pushed up, and you can see that the word spaces are much wider. (laughs) Having heard it explained, however sketchily, you may now be able to watch the whole operation with more than mere wonderment. (coughs) Mm-hmm. <clears throat> This machine transformed printing. The majority of books, at least in this country, and nearly every newspaper from the turn of the 20th century until well into mid-century were composed on it or on its mechanically identical rival, the intertype. Linotype typography became perforce the standard of the industry. And yet there was a price to be paid, compromises that had to be accepted. Consider the duplex matrix with both Roman and italic letters punched into it. It is obvious that a line set in italic has to be exactly as long as the same line set in Roman. That, however, had not been the relationship between Roman and italic type. The italic traditionally set narrower than Roman. Consider also how traditional foundry type, especially in the italic, allowed for kerning, the extending of the face of a letter beyond the edge of its type body so that it could flow above or below the adjacent letters. These were not mere flourishes. They improved the evenness of letter spacing and thereby the legibility of type. And they had to be sacrificed to the mechanism of the linotype. For all its intricacy, the linotype is not so much complex as complicated. Its operation is a sequence of fairly simple mechanical actions. I don't say that it was invented Rube Goldberg fashion, but it can be thought of that way. Okay, we've lined up the mats, now what do we do? Okay, we've gotten the mats to the mold, now what do we do? The linotype is at heart the biggest pinball machine in the world. (laughs) It is an entirely analog device. Word spacing is by sliding wedge. Letter spacing is determined by the width of matrices. Things fit where they touch. The monotype is a very different proposition with, at its heart, a mathematical system requiring for its execution a machine of profound complexity. If your head isn't spinning yet, just wait. (laughs) At first sight, the monotype seems to belie this. It is a much smaller and less imposing machine than the six-foot, eight-inch tall linotype. In action, it chugs along, casting individual letters rather than full line-length slugs, and none of the and it has none of the linotype's sweeping gestures. I can impersonate a linotype machine pretty well, but my monotype impression impression is is not good. And compared with the thousand-plus matrices that can make up a linotype font, the monotype matrix case, and since you can't see it scale in the slide here it is, hold it in one hand, slip it in your pocket, and walk away with it, Uh, seems pretty unimpressive. The secret of the monotype, of its complexity and its versatility, lies in the arrangement of these matrices. You can think of the layout of a monotype matrix case as being a map, or a game of battleship. The position of every letter, can be identified and called up by its coordinates. Left to right, as you see along the top there, A to O. Top to bottom, as you can see on the right side, one to 15, for a total of 225 possible characters, more than Linotype's 180. In each horizontal row of the matrix case, every character has the same width and these widths increase from the top of the matrix case to the bottom. Characters like the period are at the top, the narrowest row, and characters like the cap W are at the bottom, the widest row. The relative width of any character in the matrix case can be expressed as a fraction, whose denominator is, in most cases, 18 the widest character of a monotype font being divided into 18 slices and whose numerator is a number between 5 and 18 and if you look down the left column that says unit value you see numbers ranging from 5 to 18 each of the slices is called a unit and the full 18 units are called an m as are the quads of handset type. Whatever the size or style of type in a monotype matrix case, therefore, the relative width of every character can be known. The relative width can be known. Any character in a six-unit row of matrices will be one-third as wide, one-third the width of an 18-unit character. Any character in a nine-unit row as figures, for instance, almost always are, will be half as wide. To this system of relative widths, m's and units, is assigned to each size of every typeface a specific dimension expressed in points and graded in quarter-point increments, which is the type's set width. The 18-unit m of a typeface is equal to that set width. Sometimes, the horizontal set width of a typeface is equal to its vertical point size. The set width of 12-point Caslon, for instance, is 12. And in those cases, the M is a true quad, 12 points square. But the set width need not be equal to a type's point size. In an expanded typeface, the set width may be wider than the point size, while in a condensed type, it may be narrower. The set width of 12-point bembo, a noticeably narrow typeface, is only 10 and 1 quarter points. Every character and every space, a fraction of that under square M, is therefore proportionately narrow. And if you've ever experienced and complained of, hey, these quads aren't square, it's because they were quads cast for a monotype face whose set width was other than its point size not the machine's fault. Monotype composition, unlike linotype, is a two-stage operation. Rather than keying a line and then immediately casting it, as on the linotype, the monotype compositor composes on a separate keyboard machine that generates a punched paper tape. That, working like a player piano roll, controls the casting machine the keyboard machine not only punches into the tape the map coordinates of each letter to be cast, but because the width of each character is exactly known, the keyboard mechanism keeps track of the length of the line as it is being composed, knows how much space is left in the line, and can tell the operator how much to fill out the remainder of an unjustified line or how wide to make the word spaces of a justified line. All this information is encoded in the tape, which is read by the caster that casts in sequence the individual letters and spaces of composed text in lines of identical length. Identical length. Well, identical if the keyboard is properly set up and if the caster is properly calibrated. Both big ifs. The keyboard calculates not in PICA's But in M's, relative, not specific measures. So, desired line length must be translated from picas into M's. The first of many charts and tables must be consulted. This sheet tells us that to compose, say, a 25 pica long line of 10 and one quarter point set, 12 point Bembo, the keyboard must be set to a measure of 29 M's and 5 units. Because the arrangement of letters in a Bembo matrix case is unique to that typeface, the correct key bars, (coughs) which translate the strokes of a key into the right matrix case coordinates, (coughs) must be installed. Because the progression of unit values is also unique to Bembo, the correct stop bar, which assigns to each row of matrices its correct number of units, must also be fitted. And finally, if justified text is to be composed, a justification scale for the set width of that type must be consulted so that as the end of the line approaches, the keyboard operator will know how many increments of five ten thousandths of an inch must be added to each word space in order to make the line come out to the right length. The information in the keyboard tape is not electronic. Unit measures are computed by gear teeth rather than binary ones and zeros, but the output of the keyboard is still digital. The caster that is controlled by the keyboard tape, however, produces output, I'm using computer terms, listen to me, (laughs) produces output in the form of individually cast letters and spaces. In order for the analog input of output of the caster to match the digital input from the keyboard, the casting machine must be calibrated so that the actual dimensions of the type match the theoretical dimensions of the tape. Accuracy to four significant decimal places, a 10,000th of an inch, is required. Yet more charts and tables must be referred to, and a monotype caster man becomes very handy with a micrometer. And now you can all see how this works in action. Installing the key bars. Thank you. Installing the key buttons. Installing the stop bar, installing the justification scale, all of which have to be right for the face being composed. Keyboards powered by compressed air, which is the noise in the background. justifying the spaces It's actually a good deal louder than that. (laughs) Castor is reading the tape. Compressed air pushes up air pins, which control the positions of the jaws and the tongs, which move the position of the matrix case, forth and back and side to side. pump, pumping the molten metal, every stroke is one letter, marches out of the delivery channel into the galley, there's the pot of molten metal, about 700 degrees. monotype unit system imposed its own limitations on type design. In an entire font, there could only be at most 11 different widths of character, and there were generally fewer than that, and all these widths were in a preordained relationship to one another. If you look closely at some monotype faces, knowing the originals from which they are modeled, you can occasionally notice a character that looks a little wider or narrower than it should. In practice, however, these distortions are, are less obvious or disconcerting than linotypes. Italic characters, which can be placed on unit rows different from the Roman, can set narrower, and kerning is perfectly feasible. As you can see here in these lines of Centaur Roman and its a companion Arrighi Italic, cast from the same matrix case. Notice the extreme difference in line length between the Roman and the italic. Uh, and look at how the italic F in of flaunts its kerns. The monotype system, its manufacturers kept pointing out, produced what the printer wanted and was used to, type, rather than something almost the same as. Linotype and monotype were mechanical marvels, but in the beginning, the work they could do that could be done with them was less than stellar. The Linotype was built in the first place for newspaper composition, where speed and economy were paramount, and niceties didn't count for much. And although Monotype boasted right from the start that its machine was free of Linotype's hampering limitations, it too began by doing mostly utilitarian composition. The first large order for Monotype machines, which helped secure the company financially, came from the U.S. government printing office, not a place much noted for its typographic flair. And one of monotype's specialties always remained the composing of tabular and mathematical matter. It should not surprise us that the early typeface offerings of the linotype and monotype were pedestrian. In the long and arduous work of devising and manufacturing these machines, engineers, not type designers, called the shots. Similar phenomena occurred in the early days of photo and digital typesetting, when technological advance was accompanied by a backward step in typographic refinement. Not that linotype and monotype were singularly Philistine in this regard, however. Text type in general was still, at the beginning of the 20th century, pretty ho-hum. We may think of this period as being one of revival in bookmaking, with the great private presses in England and the likes of the Marymount Press and the Bruce Rogers Riverside Editions in America, and so it was. But it took some time for the really significant lessons of this printing revival to improve everyday commercial type design. To be sure, would-be Kelmscott sham medievalism seemed to be everywhere for a while, and Linotype and Monotype abetted this pretentious fad by offering their own fancy, which is not to say fine, typefaces. Here is Benedictine, a uh, linotype face from, I think, uh, 1915. And Renner, uh, a monotype face of the same period. This is a copy of a face that was first uh, developed by Theodore Laodivine for his press and his uh, grand, if somewhat ponderous, books for the Grolier Club. The real typographic revival, however, the one from which we still benefit, got seriously underway following the First World War. And in that revival, both Linotype and Monotype participated fully. The printing industry, having been awakened to its own history by the private press revivalists, began rediscovering and reissuing the typefaces of earlier eras. Modified and regularized to make them suitable for contemporary work, though sometimes denaturing them almost beyond recognition, but creating a far greater range and variety of type than had ever before been available to printers. Linotype and monotype both realized that here was a market that could be tapped into profitably. Both companies aggressively expanded their type development programs, working sometimes in collaboration, but more often in direct competition. Both linotype and monotype, for instance, made licensed copies for machine composition of American type founders Garamond type. When the companies issued typefaces that each called Baskerville, however, the two types were markedly different. Here is the monotype Baskerville. We'll see the linotype version later on. The stylistic demands made by a wider variety of typefaces pushed the technologies of the linotype and monotype further than they had originally been intended to go. Monotype had initially assumed that all typefaces could be fitted into only a few arrangements. Monotype Caslon, Bodoni, Scotch, and Koshin, for instance, all have identical matcase layouts, and a tape composed for one can be used in casting any of them. The varying proportions of different historic letterforms, however, eventually required special arrangements of character placement and unit row sequence making necessary the multiplication of key bars and stop bars, the cast iron software of the monotype, that equally equals, in easily equals in tonnage, the mats and magazines of the linotype. With neither machine can you get away from a lot of heavy lifting. Linotype's problems with typographic refinement were far more severe, however. No matter how handsomely they rendered the Roman of traditional typefaces, and I find, for instance, the linotype versions of Baskerville and Janssen Roman better than their monotype counterparts, the wide-set non-kerning italic always looked wrong to anyone accustomed to foundry type. Linotype, without ever acknowledging the problem, set about solving it in two ways. For some of their historic revival typefaces, Garamond, Janssen, Caslon, Baskerville, Linotype issued alternate single-character narrow italic matrices and accompanied them with dozens of logotypes, two or even three letters punched together into a single matrix in which letters could be made to appear to Kern. And here are the typographic refinements for Baskerville. This solution was expensive and time-consuming, and not many printers took advantage of it. Interestingly, I find, both photo and digital typesetting would later offer comparable multiple master technologies, and they too would flop commercially. Here is how Baskerville narrow italic compares with the duplexed italic. Some fine book printers, notably the Anthonson Press of Portland, Maine, took full advantage of these monotype refinements, however. The bibliography of that press, a showpiece, as well as a reference, is set entirely successfully in Linotype Baskerville. Firefly Press now owns the Anthenson Press Baskerville Matrices, and I am as unapologetic about the typeface as Fred Anthenson was. The second and ultimately more successful way in which Linotype dealt with its mechanical limitations was to commission great type designers to work around the problems, to create italics that, though full-width and non-kerning, still looked good. This approach required new and non-traditional typefaces, but that was exactly what one of Linotype's principal designers, W.A. Dwiggins, was in favor of anyway. Dwiggins' Linotype faces, Electra, and Caledonia succeed not only because of their clean modernity, but because they have unexceptionable, handsome italics. What is, to my mind, one of the finest mid-20th century typefaces, Hermann Zapp's Palatino, was designed as a linotype face, and it too has among its many virtues a lovely italic. The economics of printing in the early and mid-20th century dictated that nearly all large-scale commercial typesetting be done by machine composition. There were exceptions. The book Printing Types by D.B. Updike, published in 1922 by Harvard University Press, but printed at Updike's own Marymount Press, was entirely handset, as were nearly all Marymount Press books until the 1930s. But these exceptions were few, in England, the distinction of linotype composition for newspapers and monotype composition for books was more or less adhered to, but in America, books were more likely than not to be linotype set. Between 1930 and his death in 1956, W.A. Dwiggins designed over 300 books for publisher Alfred A. Knopf, setting a distinguished house style for that firm and widely influencing trade publishing. All of these books were were set on the linotype, many in typefaces of Dwiggins' own design. On the other hand, H.L. Mencken's monthly journal, The American Mercury, launched in 1924 and also published by Knopf, was set in the new monotype face, Garamont. The market was wide open, this was the Roaring Twenties after all, and neither side was backing down. Linotype and monotype announced their intentions to compete in high-end book and advertising typography, the last bastion of the traditional type foundries, with spectacular specimen books that showed off just what their machines and typefaces could do. The Manual of Linotype Typography, issued in 1923 with designs and commentary by William Dana Orcutt, demonstrated that linotype could be just as bombastic as any other kind of typesetting. That's not a crack at linotype, it's a crack at orchid. Bruce Rogers applied his incomparable virtuosity to specimen books for monotype Garamont in 1923 and Italian Old Style in 1924, both typefaces designed by Frederick Gowdy. Rogers succeeded, oops, I'm sorry,
0: i overshot, there we go.
1: Rogers succeeded, if that's the word, in making both these typefaces look better than they really were. Dwiggins designed and wrote what are perhaps the most delightful type specimens of all time for his two most acclaimed line of typefaces, Electra in 1935 and Caledonia in 1940. The Linotype and Monotype were both American inventions, and both were American companies. Linotype's headquarters and main manufacturing plant were in Brooklyn, and Monotype's in Philadelphia. Both machines were used around the world. The Eastern Bloc pirated line-casting technology, but as far as I know, no one ever succeeded or even tried to copy the Monotype. Linotype had affiliates in many countries. Palatino, for instance, was developed by German Linotype. In England, however, the monotype corporation that began as a regional branch of the parent company early on bought its independence from Lanston monotype, and thereafter the two companies dividing the world markets between them developed in parallel but not always in tandem or in harmony. It was English monotype that in the 1920s, under the direction of Stanley Morrison, embarked on their ambitious, far-reaching, and most successful typographic development program. English monotype created inspired type revivals. Bembo, the typeface I would choose if I could only have one. Polyphilus, Van Dyck, Fournier, the most accurate of all facsimiles of Caslon, Bell, and not just type revivals, but new faces. Eric Gill's Perpetua, Joanna and Gill Sands, Jan van Krimpen's Lutetia, Romulus and Spectrum, Joseph Blumenthal's Emerson, Hans Mardesteig's Dante, Albertus, Times, a magnificent achievement. Uh, if you would like to see these typefaces gathered together, there's a wonderful book called Tally of Type, written by Stanley Morrison, a chapter on each typeface and each chapter set in the typeface under discussion. Marvelous book. You'll notice I've left one out. What is the most beautiful of them all? My vote goes to Centaur. Stanley Morrison, who called Centaur the noblest Roman of them all, might have agreed. Whether or not Centaur is the greatest achievement of 20th century type design, there are those who are not fond of it, and it is certainly not an all-purpose face. It is at least true, I am convinced, that the greatest typographic book of the last century is the Oxford Lectern Bible of 1935, And this book is machine set in Monotype Centaur. The linotype and monotype had come into being in response to a technical bottleneck and economic need at the end of the 19th century. By the mid-20th century, the squeeze was being felt again. The demand for faster and cheaper was unrelenting. The story of the waning days of hot metal composition is again a fascinating one, if rather sad, as these two technologies were pushed to and finally beyond their limit. Another sideways leap was needed, and that leap was phototypesetting. The difference between 1890 and 1960, however, was that not only a typesetting method, but an entire printing technology was being phased out. Linotype and monotype, for all their innovations, had been a continuation of 500 years of letterpress printing and were seen as that by all involved. Phototypesetting was an offshoot of offset lithography, itself a photographic rather than a typographic process, which by mid-century was supplanting letterpress as the dominant printing technology. Not just a kind of typesetting came to an end with linotype and monotype, not even just a kind of printing. A way of thinking about printing ended as well. How much at home would Gutenberg feel at Kinko's or on a website? Not that linotype and monotype were knocked off right away by phototype. The upstart technology suffered its share of teething problems. It was complicated and expensive. And there were many competing systems. And the typography was simply not as good as the best of hot metal composition. Furthermore, printers and typesetters had an enormous investment tied up in their hot metal machines. Casting machines continued in use, producing repro proofs to be photographed and printed by offset lithography. The last generation of the beloved Vandercook proofing press was built for that purpose. Phototypesetting didn't kill hot metal, rather, digital typesetting killed them both. There are, however, degrees of dead. <laughs> as far as I know, phototypesetting has by now been entirely abandoned. It was a technology that never had the chance to mature, and there is nothing it could do that can't now be done better by other means. But old linotypes and monotypes like old soldiers, soldier on as letterpress, abandoned a generation ago by commerce, has been reborn as craft. Indeed, the linotype and monotype have largely made possible the current letterpress revival. Type foundries have all but disappeared, again almost but not quite dead, and durable foundry type for handsetting is hard to come by and expensive when you find it. And for anyone fool enough to try to make a living at letterpress, me for instance, the 19th century problems of slowness, limited supply, and wear still obtain. I am able to do what I do full time and professionally, only because I had the luck, I won't say the foresight, to pick up my linotypes and monotypes at a time when their going price was a case of Miller and take it away. Tonight's talk was billed as a heavyweight bout between the two typographic giants of the 20th century. There has been no technical knockout during this slugfest, so the call must be by decision. It's a tough choice. In its day, linotype was the clear winner in commercial terms, and there are still many more line casting machines out there than monotypes. For snob printing, monotype always had the edge, and since there is no longer any market for cheap and cheerful letterpress, Monotype has that advantage. Linotypography was and is considered by many of the cognoscenti to be second rate. The attitude is less than fair, however. True, one has to be careful to work around the flaws and limitations of the linotype, but many of the greatest typographers of the 20th century did and produced wonderful work with it. I would be very sorry to have to do without Metro, Electra, Caledonia, Eldorado, Fairfield, Waverly, Monticello, Caslon, Text, Palatino, or Optima, all linotype or intertype faces. If I had to choose one system or the other, in the day very few printers had both and a small outfit like ours could never have afforded either, I would pick the monotype for a very simple reason. With the monotype you can compose not only text, but fonts. A, 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 B, 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 and then lay the type into cases for hand setting, which is still the most efficient way to typeset the small jobs, business cards, wedding invitations that are our bread and butter. To a beginner wanting his own typesetting casting capability, I might recommend starting with the linotype. It is, as I hope we have seen, the simpler and more accessible technology. And there are still a surprising number of machines, matrices, spare parts, and even service people to be found. The monotype is for those who are really committed, or in another sense of that word, really should be committed. (laughs) As I say, a tough choice. I chose both. Thank you.
0: us to entertain questions.
1: Certainly. I try to make a few outrageous statements in every talk I give so that someone will challenge. Yes? I won't challenge, but I have a bad memory. Um, the name of the book of type in which you A Tally of Type. A Tally, a tally of, type. of Type. It was first done as a Cambridge University Press Christmas book, uh, but it's been reprinted and expanded. I think the most recent edition was published by David Godin, so it's, it's not hard to find. Hello, yes? Did I understand
0: that each machine, as you typed in what you
1: wanted made, the machine was actually making the type? It It was cast. it was starting with molten, yes. Each machine has a mold in it, each machine has a matrix or matrices in it, and by very different ways, the same result (laughs) is achieved, uh, composed text. You can take handset type, and line of type set type and monotype set type and put them all into the press at the same time and print them all together as as you'll all have a chance to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they produce is functionally identical. The way they do it is very different, except that they both both Mergenthaler and Lanson had the bright idea to hey we start we make it for the purpose, and and then when we're done we don't have to distribute it. How many people run student print shops and know that their students never put the type away. Well, with the linotype and the monotype, you don't have to worry about that. You just throw it back in the hell box afterward and recycle it. So each machine, and and it means that you always have the type you want. I don't have to buy type anymore, which is lucky because it's not to be had. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's all right. I, I don't. I don't like being my own moderator. <laughs> Michael, would you
0: would you call on people? Carson Clark. Yes, sir. Do you have a question? <laughs> yes, I do. Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you explain why you said with a monotype machine you can make a a a b b b b, but you can't do that with a line of
1: type? Well, rem- well, you can, but the linotype machine then produces a slug, and oh, right. every okay. every letter is is frozen. You can't alter a linotype slug once it's made. If you, if you, we could have gone into this point, this this went over time anyway, but this just skimmed the surface. Each machine had its advantages and disadvantages. The monotype was slower in composition. But if once you'd cast it and pulled a proof and proofread and discovered a mistake, all you had to do was pull out the wrong letter and stick in the right letter. With the linotype you discover a mistake, you've got to recast the entire line and in the process perhaps make an entirely new mistake. Uh, so for, for reuse, which neither machine was intended for, the monotype is, is the superior machine. It also makes harder type that doesn't wear out as fast, although neither of them is as good as foundry type. Where did the deaf printers end up? I'm sorry? And which one of these was used by deaf printers? Because there
0: was a whole culture of printers that were, were deaf and hearing impaired.
1: Well, certainly the monotype <laughs> is cacophonous. And, and I've, I've lost a fair bit of my high range hearing. No,
0: no, these were people who, who? were at schools for the deaf. Yep. They were trained as yep. printers.
1: I, that, I, I don't know that. Uh, that, but uh, they're they're both they're both noisy, but the monotype is is really painfully loud if you don't have ear protection, and are doing it in a small room on a hot day.
0: Um, how many people in the U.S. today actually make in self foundry type? Um, do, does anyone? I mean, I know some people like Stan Nelson designed their own yeah. forms, but I don't know.
1: Foundry type, remember, was the type that was made just for hand setting. It's what type founders sold for hundreds of years and what American type founders did. Uh, When American type founders went belly up 10, 12 years ago, uh, a number of the machines and a number of the mats were saved by... A lot of it was scrapped, but some of the good faces were saved. And uh, the Dale Guild Foundry in Howell, New Jersey still casts true foundry type using the same Barth casting machines uh, that were used for foundry type. So you can get new foundry type. Uh, There are also some foundries, I think the Stempel foundry in in Frankfurt still occasionally does subscription castings, but you you can pay $40 a pound for it. A type case can easily weigh 50 pounds. At that price, it might as well not exist. So the the monotype is, and the linotype. Mind you, once you've got the foundry type, if you take care of it, it can last a lifetime. Uh, Whereas the monotype will wear out
0: sooner rather than later. But if you can recast, that's not a problem. If anybody would like to give sets of matrices to the rare book school, we would gladly take them. Sir, you had a question in the back. I'm gonna ask if there's an environmental issue now uh,
1: with lead. Um, Not really. So if you're at that all day, you know, you're not actually inhaling the molten lead? Well, what you are inhaling, and which what is not good for you, uh, is the smoke that uh, is the oil and the dried ink that burns off. The lead is melted, but it's not smelted. It's not ionized. The linotype runs at about 550 degrees it's the eutectic alloy, the lowest melting point alloy. The monotype casting smaller pieces of type can run at a hotter temperature. With a harder alloy, it runs at about 700 degrees. That's not enough to ionize the metal. Metallic lead is pretty stable. When we think of children with birth defects as a result of lead, that's lead carbonate in paint, that's tetraethyl lead from gasoline. You don't want to eat your tomato sandwich for lunch without washing your hands first. You don't smoke your cigarette right down to the roach end. <laughs> you, you take reasonable precautions. But there was not in the printing industry a, a particularly elevated incidence of lead poisoning, unlike, say, hat makers who really did go mad because of the mercury compounds in their felting process. Uh, what you've got to be careful of, of course, is getting burned. Uh, your computers crash on you all the time but you have not seen a crash uh, until a typecasting machine has squirted. Uh, And uh, I have well I have printer friends with flat hands and I have caster man friends with vision and only one eye. Uh, This is all pre-idiot proof technology. The assumption was you knew what you were doing. You got trained by the factories that made the machines. Uh, And that was not Just to protect you, that was to protect the machine, which was very expensive. Uh, So in practical terms there is no particular problem. Um, EPA now says that any company employing over 14 people using over 10,000 pounds of lead in any process, not just printing, has to go through an elaborate Registration and monitoring process, I don't know any letterpress outfits in the country that employ more than 14 people. Uh, And in fact, OSHA would get us before EPA
0: did. Please. My question is what is the reasonable lifetime
1: of these machines, or do you not know yet? (laughs) They were designed to last indefinitely. Uh, When they were built, they were so expensive that to be profitable they had to be run all the time. setting houses, and there was a whole industry that was developed just to do typecasting. Uh, two shifts was the norm and three shifts was not unusual. Uh, but the machines were designed with the expectation that hey we've been doing it this way for 500 years, presumably we're going to be doing it for the next 500, so the parts that wore, inevitably some things wore, were designed to be removable, removed and replaced. Segments of gears, at the the point of where, at the point where stress is put on the machine, that gear segment can be unscrewed and a replacement put in. Um, As improvements were made in the machines, they were always retrofittable to the previous machines. So the expectation was they would last indefinitely. I am not concerned about that issue. I use my machines lightly enough. I fire up the linotype a couple times a week. I fire up the monotype maybe two or three times a month. I don't put a lot of heavy use on my machines. And I fully expect them to last my working lifetime and probably the lifetime of the young assistant I'm training up now. They'll eventually wear out. In 300 years' time, we'll be back to hand casting and printing on wooden presents again. But you know, long before that, the computer you're presently using will have been landfill. So I'm 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 not worried.
0: The last question: In the long run, we're all dead. How come the certain typefaces are limited um, to the italic, type or um, monotype? How come the what? The typefaces are. You either have them on Linotype or... Well,
1: well, it's not always the case. Uh, Everybody did a Caslon. Everybody did a Baskerville. Everybody did a Garamond. But each company had its own in-house designers. So there were lots of... I'm sorry? That's copyright issues. Uh, Well, and sometimes things were pirated. Yes, there was some piracy. Intertype, faked, monotypes, Kennerly. The last face that American Monotype developed, why they did it, was an imitation of Zapp's Melior. Uh, But it was a lot of work to introduce a new metal typeface. It wasn't just scan it and digitize it, boom, out it goes. You had to engrave punches, you had to. the, the fonts were very expensive. You could spend thousands of dollars for the matrices of one family of typefaces. So there were fewer typefaces to begin with anywhere. Foundry type, monotype, linotype, simply far fewer faces than we have now. And of course, they only existed in certain sizes. You couldn't just zoom up and down. There was far less in the way of piracy. And each company had faces that were unique to it. And quite frankly, if you want
0: them all, you got to have both. It's all the excuse I needed. <laughs> wow. 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 We had today the linotype as a pinball machine. We had, I don't know if you saw it, a very racy allusion to the world according to GARP that was put up here. A very clever allusion to Monty Python at one point. And we had the eutectic form of the alloy. it's my great privilege to thank John Christensen for his amazing Thank thank you Very wisely and very well we have our card from the Rare Book School staff to say thank you and we'd like to present you with a poster of your talk to say thanks thank you very much you. indeed. I feel certain that John would be more than pleased to continue the discussion in Alderman 109 where there will be wine and cheese and other delectables in order for us to continue our, our converse. And there are some wonderful samples here. Keepsakes from Keepsakes. the um, Keepsakes of the lecture. Before the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> do, not, do not leave the room without looking at the back tables. Thank you very much indeed.